I think really for the health of our communities and our country, we need to recognize the trauma left behind from this disenfranchisement from colonialization, the stuff that's been edited out and ignored. And it's when you pay attention and you honor that trauma and what it's done to these people, you start a healing process that can happen. And I, so I do think photography is a tool being used to um, bring this healing. And that's why I think it is medicine. Hello and welcome to the Insight Podcast from the Zion Canyon Mesa, a residency center for the arts and humanities in Springdale, Utah, surrounded by Zion National Park. I'm your host, Logan Hebner. The Spanish enslavement of indigenous peoples across the Southwest was an immense market in humans, second only to that of African Americans. Severed from their lands and cultures, how did some of them create a path forward? Who are the Henisero? How can Catholicism and indigenous traditions coexist, perhaps even synergize, in one community? And how can photography act as medicine? Today we talk with documentary photographer Russell Albert Daniels. He begins with the incredible story of his great-great-grandmother Rose, who was captured from her Diné homeland by a band of Utes and sold to a Mormon settler in the Uinta Basin. We will talk about how this story led Russell to the Genisero Pueblo of Abiquiu in northern New Mexico. This project, titled The Genisero Pueblo of Abiquiu, is available online. Please see our show notes for the link. This was produced in collaboration with the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. It's part one of Russell's series, Exploring Native American Slavery in the Southwest. Russell is being interviewed by Zion Canyon Mesa's Ben Kilborn. Welcome to the show, Ben. How are you doing? Doing well. Thanks. So, Ben, how did you meet Russell? How, did you, how do you know him? It's just one of those things in uh, Salt Lake City, sometimes called Small Lake City. It seems like uh, everybody <laughs> seems to just know each other somehow. But uh, these days, with COVID, it seems like most of my interactions with him are actually on Instagram. I watch him every day document his daily hikes in the Wasatch and his daily walks around his neighborhood in black and white, giving his life and, by extension, my own mundane hikes and walks more meaning somehow. And when I heard about his project and realized I had no idea who the Henizero are, I knew that I wanted to do a podcast episode about it. Right. I was the same way. I I had never heard of these people. And it's interesting that you guys connected through through the landscape itself, places that you go. Excellent. Well, let's get to the interview. Russell, welcome to Insight. Thank you. It's a it's a pleasure to be here. I'm always excited to be part of uh, topics around Utah and things that have happened in and around Utah. Awesome. My first major in college was actually photography, but I drifted into painting so I could be messier, maybe. It seemed like it suited my chaotic personality a little bit better. I'm curious, what is it about photography that resonates with you? as a means of storytelling, as compared to writing or, say, video? What is it about photography that allows you to say what you want to say or unearth the story that's there? 
I've been doing photography for a long time, since high school, really. I've, I fell in love with black and white photography in the dark room and just was um, entranced by the power that it had. And as I grew older and uh, kind of more educated, I've, I started to see how the power of photography can potentially affect social change, uh, especially if you bring it in from uh, a perspective of you know wanting to to bring visibility to certain issues or certain people or certain communities. So it seems like actually sort of a, a tension between journalism and art for you. Right. Yeah. I have always considered since I was a kid, uh, I consider myself an artist first and, you know, photography be- became a tool for my expression and then also photojournalism and all of its uh, ethics and structure has become a tool for me to make art. So I don't really call myself a journalist up front, even though I am, I'm trained, uh, but I do call myself an artist. And you have written about how photography is a sort of medicine for you. Could you say a little something about that? Right, you know, it's it's a medicine for me, documentary photography in particular, and it's also, I feel like, a medicine for the communities that I work in because it it has the opportunity to bring healing through public discourse. And in the end, that can lead to positive social change. And so when you bring when you bring uh, visibility to certain communities, certain people, it allows them to regain their power especially if this community or this person has lived in a, a situation of disenfranchisement or, or uh, colonialism has a tendency to silence a lot of these communities. And so I feel like photography brings a, a big level of visibility and it helps provide a voice to people to express their own narrative. And so, and I think when you do that, that begins the healing process or it can begin a healing process. Yeah, and I'd say that's all really apparent in your project surrounding the Hinizero Pueblo of Abiquiu, which we'll get into in a second. Awesome. But I want to talk a little bit about your ancestry. You come from Diné, Ho-Chunk, and Mormon settler heritage. Right. On my father's side, we are Diné, which is Navajo, for those who don't know. And on my mother's side... We are Ho-Chunk, which is um, the Winnebago people. And mixed within that all together here in Utah, there's um, also some European settler, Mormon settler um, heritage there as well. So it's kind of a, a mutt race, really. I, I just wanted to ask you to tell the incredible story about your Grandma Rose, and in particular, how this story led you to the Hinizero Pueblo of Abiquiu. Yeah, this is a very interesting story. It's one that I grew up with. Uh, many people in my family grow up, have grown up with this story of Rose Daniels. She's my, she was my great great grandmother in roughly 1840. She was born, and in about 1845, she was taken captive by White River Utes that were living in northwestern Colorado, and. At this time in the 1840s and for the previous two, couple hundred years, there were um, 
a lot of slave raiding going on between uh, certain tribes and also the Spanish colonial people that were in the area in starting in really the 16th century. But a couple hundred years later than that, 1845, Rose was taken captive by White River Utes and taken away from uh, Deneata, which is the Navajo um, nation, Navajo homeland, and taken into Ute territory and was kept a uh, slave there for roughly maybe about a decade, kind of passed around between a few other Native people, different bands of Utes, including uh, Chief Tabby, who is part of a a family of uh, predominant Ute leaders in 18th and 19th centuries. And she was there for about a decade. And then eventually uh, she was sold to my great, great grandfather, uh, Aaron Daniels, who came with the Mormons in 1847 into Utah territory and were squatting here. In Me- and at the time was Mexico. And at that time there was um, slave trading going on, which was, part of the legacy that the Spanish colonial people had left, like I said, starting in um, 1500s, 1600s. And it definitely appears that slavery existed pre-contact, but not at these levels that uh, the Spanish brought. And it's it appears that it wasn't a slave trade. It appears there wasn't an economic um, incentive behind all of it. Aaron Daniels was a polygamous Mormon, and he, he was set out by Brigham Young to help establish a bunch of uh, frontier towns at the time, including Provo, Heber area, and also in Wyoming up by uh, Fort Bridger. And so he was seeing a lot of territory. He was seeing a lot of these slaves come and go. And at this point, when Aaron acquired him, so in 1852, Brigham Young and the Mormon-controlled legislature passed an act for the relief of Indian slaves and prisoners, which allowed for Mormon and white residents to purchase Native children for, in quotes, adoption for up to about 20 years to work as captive domestic laborers. And often these young people didn't make it to see their adulthood. When Brigham Young and the Mormons first arrived into Mexico territory here in Utah, as they were squatting, they didn't understand the extent of the legacy of Spanish Native American slavery. Even though Spain was gone, it was still going on. The Utes in this area had kept it going. It was a huge economic engine for the Utes. And what gave them that the Utes so much power was that a series of trails, which they call the Old Spanish Trail now, were predominantly in Utah. And most of the trail, this old Spanish trail was actually mostly Ute. And so when Spain came, they wanted a a route from Santa Fe to Los Angeles to the ocean for trade. And that route was was pretty much already there, but it was kind of completed right as Mexico took over from Spain. And so for a long, you know, maybe, oh, I don't know how many decades, it was a widely used trail for trafficking humans trafficking horses, trading all the way into California, all kinds of goods. Brigham Young didn't quite, when he first got here, didn't quite understand the extent of what was going on. But within a a few years, they had figured out that there was a a slave trade happening. And they at first didn't want to be part of it, even though some of the Mormons 
before they got here had black African slaves. But at some point, Brigham Young figured that he would take part of it. And uh, him and the Mormon-controlled legislature passed this act. And if you start looking at that, you, you can see you can see how these colonial powers, whether it be Spanish or, or the Mormons, you know, they're, a lot of their fundamental uh, base of their religion, of the Book of Mormon, for the Mormons, for instance, is is based upon some ideas of white supremacy. Um, the fact that they could overpower these natives and uh, and take them as slaves. And you, when you look at the Book of Mormon, you see that they call the Indians, the, the, the Native Americans, uh, Lamanites. And in, 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 in their book, the Lamanites are a fallen tribe of Israel. And, you know, when you have, when you have that kind of wording, it's just, it sets, sets up for uh, major discrimination and racism. So up until about 1900s, there was about a 50-year run where legally Mormons obtain Native American slaves. And that's kind of how Rose fit into the picture into my family. Of course, it was all always described as charity. It was always described as, you know, they were going to be able to convert these Native Americans into, and this is a quote from Brigham Young, white and delightsome people. I'll leave it there, kind of let it ring. <laughs> and so Aaron picked up Rose and brought her into both of his different family's households at separate times, but she spent uh, many years with one family, mostly as a domestic servant. And then she spent another bunch of years with his other family. He had two other wives and uh, they, they ended up uh, bringing her in and adopting her. And from what it sounds like, they treated her really well. And um, she got public education. She, she pretty much assimilated and adopted a lot of the, the Mormon ways. After a while, both of Aaron's wives left him because he he liked to drink and he liked to prospect for gold. And there's a whole other stories behind all that. If you know anything about the Spanish gold mines in the Uinta Basin, Aaron's wives left him, and he got sick, and they sent Rose to go take care of him. And within a few years, they were married. And within a few years of that, they had four kids. And at about this time, in the late 1800s, the Northern Ute Reservation there in Fort Duchesne, Rose was became enrolled with him. And so her and her family, my, my dad's side of the family has been enrolled with the Northern Ute tribe since then. And I'm the first, me and my siblings are the first generation born off of that reservation. Mm. Um, we're not Ute. I mean, she was Diné. Um, mm-hmm. The Utes adopted her. Some of the Utes nearby actually took her, you know, captive and trafficked her back into Utah and in Colorado. So it's an interesting history. The reason there's there's a lot more details out there, but the reason that there are so many details about her is that she kind of before, you know, before she died, even before she was close to dying, she became kind of a well-known figure because of her being taken captive, being a slave. And um, so there's a lot. I have a box over here, and it's full of um, memoirs from different people in our family that had 
had been told her story or knew her story. There's in that same box, there's a bunch of uh, magazine clips, even from back in 1940s. They were writing about her. And if you get deep enough in there, you see that one of the first silent movies ever made was kind of loosely based on Rose and Aaron's life. And that mm. movie, ironically, is called Squaw Man. Mm. And it's a silent movie. And I think you can watch it on the YouTube somewhere. And uh, huh. and so she, her story caught a lot of people's attention. And it caught mine. And uh, it, ca- it catches most of my families. We're all pretty, you know, into this ancestor worship a little bit. But, sure. it's, yeah. you know, when it's uh, interesting, it's, I mean, her stories influence uh, my life in so many ways and yeah you know led to uh kind of what i'm doing today with photography and social documentary photography so let's get into that so the story of her being uprooted from her original home and being moved somewhere else and this sort of blending of cultures that results from that is sort of this story that we find in common with the Hanizero. Is that right? Right. Yeah. It's um. It's very interesting. Like, I would say a lot of a lot of people I run into don't know who the Hanizero are, and um. And that's that's all right because I mean that's not all right, but it's 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 kind of the product. The fact that we don't know about them, we haven't been taught that in school is you know kind of part of the colonial uh system and uh, editing what it does want to uh, put in its narrative or not and so the interesting thing about rose is that this legacy of spanish colonial native american slave trade that started in the late 1500s when they sh- when spain showed up into uh, new mexico and started settling there just instantly starting right away. Whenever whenever they, they traveled, they would often um, battle with uh, different Native people that they would come across. And in the end, they had superior technology and they usually won. You know, they had the horse, they had the swords, they had the armor. And they were able to conquer a lot of these different tribes and different people as they traveled up north, you know, all the way from Mexico to New Mexico. And... And so right away when they went into these battles, they always ended up with uh, captives. And they took those captives often back to their settlements and turned them into slaves, and uh, which was allowed by their their law, which was coming all the way from Spain. Um, and it was a, a collaboration with the Catholic Church at the same time who justified taking these Native people to save them, as they say. So... Over over years and years, a couple hundred years of the Spanish being in the southwest borderlands, you know, as far as this, the farthest north they went is New Mexico, uh, as far as settlements. I mean, they explored all the way up into here, into Utah. They explored into the Midwest, but they never settled those areas. And so a couple hundred years of, of having slaves, and uh, by the 1700s, there was a third of the population in New Mexico was Hanisero. And so the Hanisero is the name given to these slaves. And that word comes from Spain's own involvement back home when they battled with the Turks. And so uh, 
the Spanish um, called these people Hanisaro, and that was based upon the Turkish word Janissari, which meant captive turned soldier. And so as the Spanish spent a couple hundred years in these southwest borderlands, they once again, they had lots of uh, slaves. And the interesting thing about Rose, she came, you know, in 1840s, middle 1800s, which was, oh, 20 years after Spanish were kind of kicked out of the area. And at the time, it was Mexico territory. Um, but the interesting thing is that Rose could have easily, with this legacy of the slave trade, could have gone south into Abiquiu uh, and been sold there. But instead, the Utes brought her north and um, ended up with a Mormon family. So there's a lot of crossover, a lot of similarity going on there and uh, just different time periods. But the, the legacy of Native American slave trade in the Southwest is kind of the main focus of my project. And it's, it's one of the reasons I really um, am attracted to this is, is because not just my family's involvement in it, because, you know, Rose was a slave and Aaron was a slave buyer, but also I think it's pretty fascinating that this stuff has been left out of our, our history books. You know, I never read about this Spanish imperialism in, in high school or college, you know, you, you learn a little bit about Spanish being in Southwest, but I think the Anglo-American narrative in general, you know, has edited this information out um, maybe to, you know, show some kind of superiority or uh, doubt. So, so part of my, my mission is to bring this information forward and start to recognize the trauma that has been caused by colonial impact on native communities. Yeah, I certainly was not aware of this, and I think the history I was aware of is just much more black and white. I was aware that there were Native Americans, and I was aware that there were European settlers. I was not aware of this sort of uh, caste system that developed. Yeah, so the caste system did end when... um I believe it ended when Mexico kicked out Spain, but wherever Spain went, they colonized and they took in slaves. And through that process, they created new ethnic people, kind of uh, some people might say half breeds or whatever. And along with that, you know, with their record keeping and the way they uh, monetized everything, they had to uh, create names. And so, they created a caste system. I mean, you see this in the Philippines, you see it in China, you see it all over all over the world, wherever they went, they created a whole caste system. And uh, mm-hmm. I imagine the Hanisaro people were some of the last people that they added to their caste system and before uh, they got rid of it. Interesting. Which, but it never, it never, uh, the, like you never heard, hear the word Hanisaro in Utah. Uh, no, it's, definitely not. The Mormons never even talked about it. And so now, more recently, the Hanisaro are looking to reclaim this word for themselves. Is that right? Right. Um, I would say over the last decade, there's been a big movement to um, embrace the term Hanisaro and the people that descend from the original Hanisaros. It's been a long time in the making because for probably a century 
up until the last oh, 20 years, uh, Hanisaro was often used as a slang word. It was used, people would throw it at people to diss them or make fun of them. But that also goes in hand in hand with the colonial powers um, and how people take sides. And, you know, for a while, for a long while, I imagine it was safer to say you're Spanish or you're even Mexican and not yeah. a Hanisaro. And so, mm. you know, the the effects of um, assimilation are pretty heavy in, in this area. And so it's it's an amazing surprise to see a comeback and it's, it is really coming back. And it's exciting to see. In 2007, uh, the state of New Mexico honored uh, Hanisaro people and uh, recognized it as a state, as indigenous people. And so that's that's a that's that's pretty impressive. And um, and like in Abiquiu, where I worked on my project um, for three months last year, uh, people there just have, have been celebrating their Hanisaro background and culture for almost three hundred years. So it never really left. So and you you said you spent how long with them? Two and a half for three months. Yes, yeah, so my project, the Hanisaro Pueblo of Abiquiu, was in collaboration with the National Museum of the American Indian, which is a Smithsonian museum. So yeah, for my my project, I spent almost three months in Abiquiu and in Santa Fe, working on this photo essay in collaboration with the museum, and uh, it was spread out over the year. I chose particular times to be there when Abiquiu was having their uh, historical feast days. I went during the Santa Rosa de Lima feast day, which is kind of a predominantly Catholic celebration, but you can't escape the native influence and the Hanisaro influence in all of these ceremonies. And so I, I did that in the summer, and then I came back in the winter for their most um, noted celebration. And it's primarily more of a Hanisaro feast day. And that's was at the end of November. So it was about a year ago. I was, I was, I was hanging out. I was living in a, a single wide trailer that I had mm-hmm. rented from a, a couple of local people just off down below the Pueblo and um, spent a lot of time getting to know the local folks there. So you write about, shared vulnerability, how it helped you gain the trust of the Hanisaro people. Could you say a little bit about that? I think I think one of the things that's missing from a lot of uh, journalism and even scientists and anthropologists is that they, they go, they kind of parachute into these communities, maybe not always scientists, but journalists in particular, they parachute in, take some notes, take some photos, and then come out. And often don't take the time to create a relationship with the people and create, you know, discover the nuances that make these cultures colorful and beautiful and help extinguish the stereotypes. And so I feel like a way to get around that is, and maybe this is what's missing in a lot of uh, journalism, especially non native journalism is that you you come in with uh, good intentions you come in with respect you come in and you share a lot of your own personal not a lot but certain parts of your own personal history and you create you know you're you're offering your own your own vulnerability to them and in turn they hopefully 
are vulnerable back to you and start showing you the nuance of this culture. A lot of a lot of these cultures are protective for so many reasons, but I feel like if you come in with a good intentions and share your own personal story, I, I just believe that um, making yourself vulnerable and offering pieces of yourself help create um, better relationships and an intimacy which does reveal the nuance and a lot of this stuff is missing from journalism and i think it's a problem you know and i I went to journalism school at the university of montana and you know you're taught that you are not supposed to have an opinion about things and as a journalist and this is kind of more of a uh you know that my program was more of a print journalism program and which is you know one of to me in my mind print journalism is some of the best journalism uh cable news can is almost wouldn't call that journalism at all mm. but mm-hmm. you know the whole idea of having no bias it's like we're born with a bias the minute we we come out of the womb and um you know i understand when you're reporting facts about certain kinds of stories you need to re- not have your opinion in, in there but when when you begin to report on things that um, are more sensitive or maybe people or communities that are disenfranchised due to colonial powers. It's sometimes you have to bring forward some of your own bias and, you know, you have to keep it in check. Um, But I think to properly uh, report and document these communities, I think it helps to, have that intimacy and that vulnerability and to, to reveal the nuanced layers that are often there. Yeah, that seems really important. Just uh, sharing with them what is, which is your story about your grandma Rose and, and everything that you just said. Right. Yeah. So that's, I think uh, to get back to your question, I shared with all these folks, my own family story, um, about my great great grandmother Rose, and uh, it was it was a pretty much in you know when you have when you have that kind of story and you have a genuine intentions, people see that, and I was I was pretty much accepted into many of the homes in Abiquiu mm. in the Pueblo. Mm. Wonderful. I want to get into the photos a little bit. There's this photo of Rafaelita Martinez. She's standing near a wall in front of what seems like a gate, holding a cane. And I was hoping maybe you could just say a little bit about this photo, and then I have a question associated with it. Yeah, um, Rafaelita Martinez is is a super sweetheart. Everyone loves Rafaelita. She's the oldest Hanisaro living in Abiquiu. She's 94, maybe 95 now. She welcomed me into her home, and I, I ended up attending a mass with her a couple times at the Santo Tomas Parish, and we kind of developed a fun relationship. And she invited me into uh, to have Sunday dinner with her and two of her daughters, um, homemade food, Homemade, homegrown green chilies, dried uh, carne adovada uh, that night with uh, papas, potatoes, and homemade tortillas, and that that was amazing. Just it was such an amazing 
opportunity for me to spend time with her. Um, in this photo that you're talking about, this black and white photo, it's Rafaelita in front of these old wooden doors and this old adobe wall. And this is her family's home, a placita, they called it. Um, it's kind of a couple little homes with a, a fortified wall around it. So so here we got it. We probably got to talk a little bit about Hanisaro land grants because Abiquiu, the Pueblo of Abiquiu is a Hanisaro land grant. And what that is, is in, like I said, in the 1700s, there were a third of the population of people living there were Hanisaro. The Spanish settlers didn't want the Hanisaro people um, living with them once they were freed from slavery. And by Spanish law, a Hanisaro usually got their freedom by adulthood. So 18 to 20 something. And so that's how you ended up with a third of the population being Hanisaro. But also in there, a lot of the slaveholders, Spanish people, uh, inflicted sexual violence on many of the slaves. And you get this mixed population over a couple hundred years. And so by 1700, there's groups of Hanizaros, families living in these areas without anywhere to go. They couldn't own land. They couldn't own weapons. They couldn't own animals. And so they started to petition the government for their own land grants. And at the time, the Spanish crown was granting these land grants to settlers throughout the area. Uh, but they started to consider these Hanisaro land grants. And one of the reasons they decided to do that was they saw an opportunity to protect the villas of Santa Fe, Albuquerque, Santa Cruz, which were under constant raids of surrounding nomadic tribes that lived in the north and the east. Um, and so it was it was a constant thing, and many people were dying on both sides, um, the natives and the Spanish settlers. And so the Spanish um, government at the time, the governor, throughout maybe a 20, 30-year period, created about a dozen of these land-grant communities, and Abiquiu is one of them. And really what, what it was, it was a big experiment, it, but it was also – they set them in these natural corridors, these natural migrating corridors where, you know, since the Ice Age, animals have been going through, the native people in the area have been traveling through. And they place these land-grant communities on these predominant paths, these migration paths, to protect them from the raiding tribes in the area. And so another quick side note to this is that by about 1700, you see a big switch from the Spanish people doing the slave raiding and bringing in uh, slaves to their communities to predominantly the Utes and the Comanche uh, taking over the slave raiding and then selling mm. their captives at different trade fairs in Apicu eventually and Taos. So back to Rafaelita in this photo, that's her standing in front of the original wall. Um, I imagine it's been recoded with um, stucco many mm -hmm. times and possibly even rebuilt, but some of these doors are the original doors. And mm. her compound there, her placita, was 
on the edge of the Pueblo. So it was like the main defense, mm. um, one of the main defenses. And, uh, mm. you know, these, these communities were built and fortified for these Hanizero militia pretty much mm. um, to protect the Spanish and also protect the Pueblo um, people, the Pueblo tribes throughout Northern New Mexico kind of had at some point, you know, we're talking about right now, 500 years ago, but at that point it was about two or 300 years ago, the, you know, and these Indian and uh, Pueblo people had the relationship with the Spanish colonizers changed dynamics throughout these centuries. And in the end, the Spanish, you know, kind of made an agreement to not enslave the Pueblo people and, you know, part of because the, they're living right next to them, and the Pueblo people supplied um, all kinds of resources to the Spanish people, and so they saw them. They tried, you know, as much as they could, ally with them and protect them from the raiding tribes. I see. So, and in the caption to this photo, you write, Rafaelita says that, quote, the history of Abiquiu crystallizes the tumultuous history of the entire Southwest. And I think of the Zion area where the artist residency is located, where Zion Canyon Mesa is located, and the similar stories that played out there with the Southern Paiute, and probably a lot of other places. What does she mean by this? I think what Rafaelita means by that is that when you look at the history of Abiquiu, you see once again these centuries and centuries of of history and the colonial powers that have come in and changed the dynamics of the area um once again there you know there's evidence of people living in these areas right during the end of the ice age you know that's talking 14,000 years ago roughly and um and who knows before that and so what we're talking about is a very small fraction of humans in the area. But what's interesting is the power of the colonial power and how it changed kind of the course of these indigenous people. And you really can, when you, when you go to Abiquiu, when you drive up the hill into the Pueblo, and I recommend everyone, if they're ever in this area, uh, which is about an hour north of Santa Fe, to try to drive up there and just get out and walk around um, and visit the the cultural center there, go see the church, the Santo Tomas Church, and just kind of do a little drive. There's, it's not too big of an area, but most most people don't even realize the history that goes on in this pueblo in Abiquiu. Most people see no Abiquiu because they hear Georgia O'Keeffe lived there, um, and that just that whole information about O'Keefe kind of what has wiped out a lot of the Hanizero history. And so when you go there and you see this stuff, you really, you feel like you've just stepped back in time. I mean, the roads, the roads are all dirt. Um, supposedly there was about six or seven bars and you wonder where those fit because you don't, mm. you can see where maybe one or two bars were, were, were at. Mm. These were drinking establishments, even though they're, you know, very uh, Catholic, they also lived their own life and mm-hmm. had their own way, way of life and had the, had the decisions and the power to do that. Um, but I think what you see there is you see the, the power of, um, the unfortunate power of the colonial powers. And 
how it's kind of created what it is today. Um, and you see that in Utah as well and, and down in the Zions area in particular and, all, and actually all throughout Utah and where when the Mormons showed up, their authoritative colonial power um, really changed the life ways of the native people living here. You know, they, they're, they're guilty of massacres, mountain meadows, or the massacre at Circle, Circleville, just all over. It was a constant battle. And you, you see the similarities. And really, to me, it's like as much as New Mexico's four or 500 miles away, Utah, it's all four corners area and it's all the same territory, really, in, in my opinion. And it, it's bizarre how uh, up here in Utah, our political state borderlines really bring a separation in people, you know, and the way they think, um, even though this was, this, this was all Mexico, you know, a hundred and something years ago. And, and so I think what she's getting at really is just, you can really see history in Abiquiu when you mm. go visit. And I feel like you can see that in some places in Utah, in the Southwest. One of the most fascinating things about your photo essay is the juxtaposition or tension between Catholicism and indigenous traditions. I love the photos, for example, of the Santo Tomas feast day festival, where people are wearing indigenous ceremonial clothes while dancing through the church. And of course, the church is there because of Spanish colonizers. And so you can sort of see the mixed Spanish and indigenous cultures on full display in that one photo. Right. Unlike in uh, Utah, and maybe Colorado, uh, you really see a big separation from indigenous cultures and the popular culture, especially when you compare indigenous cultures and the popular religious culture, like the Mormons, for instance, in Utah, and the, the Native Americans here. There's always big divides and dividing lines. But when you, I feel like when you go down into uh, the Four Corners area, and, and in particular, into New Mexico, the line is blurred. And um, New Mexico, I didn't realize how Catholic it is. I mean, everyone I met identifies as Catholic on some level or, or whether it just be because they're completely devoted or because they were raised that way. And the interesting thing about that is that they, you know, whether they believe in it or not, there's still a lot of pride around the Catholic culture that exists in everyone's uh, life in their community. Unlike in Utah, either you are a hundred percent proud of being a Mormon or you are not often, or you are Mormon and you kind of hide from it. You know, there's not, it's either one or the other. And, and in New Mexico, it's, kind of in everybody's blood and it's more than just you know the bible or the church it's it becomes a community thing and so you see in these photos from santo tomas feast day in abiquiu which is their big feast day in uh end of november sometimes first of december you see these um Hanizuro dancers dancing through uh the parish the church there and you see them in their traditional ceremonial where you know often these are most of the dancers are female young women and 
children, little girls, and they're dressed in these, often in these dresses that are kind of represents the, the influences of the different tribes of where Hanizoro people came from. Um, it's very intertribal. It's like, so Hanizoros were taken from all over. They were Apache. They were Navajo. They were Ute. They were Comanche. They were Pueblo. They were Pawnee. They were Kiowa. Many different tribes had people, had their children and their women taken from them. And so what you see in Santo Tomas feast day in these dances, you see the different, you see the different influences of these different tribes, whether it be the face paint or the type of feathers that they're using or the jewelry they're using or their clothes. And so you see that in the church juxtaposed up against, you know, statues of Jesus Christ, uh, paintings, these uh, religious paintings of uh, saints in the church. And um, it's, it's, it's hard to separate in, in New Mexico in particular, it seems like in, in these communities, not to generalize because New Mexico is full of, of nuance, um, but you see in Abiquiu how people embrace both their Catholic and their Native American backgrounds. And it's, it's, it's impressive. I found it interesting because I grew up here in Utah born into this uh, Mormon family with, you know, strong Native American background. And, uh, and at some point I uh, left the Mormon church and for many different reasons that I won't get into, but uh, you know, and as, as I did photography, as I, I kept doing photography and as I kept researching my own background and Native American cultures, I was, I've always been, you know, attracted to, the spiritual aspect of that and um, and how it's tied to nature and to the, the great spirit and how everything's connected and uh, you know, which Mormon church uh, doesn't do that so much. And so, you know, part of my fascination with uh, researching and documenting native cultures is trying to discover new aspects of spirituality. So when I went to New Mexico and into Abiquiu and to the, into these Hanizoro communities, they were strongly uh, uh, very Catholic, and I was kind of taken off guard by that. Like I've never been to mass, so I've never been to mass that many times. I've never been to mass until I went there, and uh, and now I've gone about a dozen times, and it was at first a little discouraging because I wanted to discover something a little more profound, and there is so much more to discover there about the spiritual aspects of the Native American people there, but. They're also very Catholic, a lot of them. Um, and so um, I just kind of kind of went with it and tried to learn something for myself and uh, expand my own horizons on what it means to be indigenous. Yeah, it sounds like a, a big part of this was a personal journey for you. It makes me wonder, and that maybe you don't have the answer to this, but what is it, or is there something about Mormonism that disallows other traditions to mesh with it easily that Catholicism seems to have, or does it have nothing to do with the different religions at all, and it's just something else? Yeah, I'm not, I'm definitely not the official uh, to make a solid statement Oh, that's that. fine. I can, uh, I would say that the Mormon church has no room for Native American influence, especially spirituality. 
even though they uh, have in their own scripture, they talk about Lamanites, the Native American people of the Americas. I think I think what you see wherever Spain colonized, they often they came and then they would leave, or and they would you know set up communities and start converting these indigenous people to uh, Catholics. Um, but often they would leave these communities, even though there might be a mission there or a church. Um, and that vacancy left room for for the local indigenous people to what what happened is is that they create and this is in New Mexico and, and other uh, countries where Spain colonized, you'll see, this um, development of kind of a folk Catholicism that blends indigenous mm. and Catholicism together. Interesting. And it's, called, it's called the penitentes. Um, and in Abiquiu, they have the Los Hermanos Penitentes, and it's a brotherhood that is more, it's not just about um, the spiritual teachings of Catholicism, it, you know, once again, they incorporate a little bit of their own whatever flavors in, in the neighborhood. But it's it's kind of like since, since a priest aren't there, they kind of have to create – they created a, a, a structure that supports the community, whether it be for praying for people, whether it be for burials or births. You know, this is when the when the when the priest was absent, and so you do see these uh, penitente style brotherhoods form in different places throughout uh, many areas where Spain colonized, and and Abiquiu is has this, and it's it's a very interesting thing that I, I don't get too much involved. It doesn't uh, take a big role in my project, but it's it's there. Um, we do talk about it a little bit, and um, and that's where you do see the blending native and uh, Catholicism um, when you go to when you go to mass and you go to the to the main church every little town in New Mexico has a church whether it's a Pueblo even all the Pueblos have their own Catholic church in them and so Abiquiu has that as well you, when you go in you don't really see um, like in their art or in their design too much indigenous um, influence but when you start looking a little bit deeper at the details, you start seeing it, whether it be some designs or mm. a woven, like a Navajo woven blanket with, you know, Mary on it or Jesus. Um, and then you mm. see the, the, the crowds, the, the people that show up are often, you know, mixed, but you do see many Native people showing up to, to worship. There's something about what you're saying that feels really comforting to me because I, I grew up going to Catholic school, which was frankly traumatizing for me. And But there's something really comforting about people being able to find meaning in something that I took far too literally, probably the same goes for Mormonism, is that there's a literalism to these religions that it can, like I said, be traumatizing. And right. so there's something about this sort of like relaxing of literalism that allows for the blending of these cultures that is comforting. It's It totally makes sense. And it's like uh, maybe, you know, what they realize how to survive how it survives <laughs> like instead of let it fade fade away it's like you gotta 
mix the two or just create your own version of it. And I mean, that's how religions are really formed. I think, you know, maybe Mormonism is a separation, but like the whole idea behind Christianity, I mean, the beginnings of it are way different than what Catholicism is today. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's cause you got to evolve. And um, sometimes that includes incorporating other things. Let's talk about another photo. The, Final dance of the festival is the captive dance, which you have an incredible photo of, where there are well, you you just go ahead and describe it. Yeah, this captive dance, as they say, El Cautivo, which is a interesting, almost I don't know if it's a a slang, not really a slang word, but just the way they talk, cautivo, because in Spanish it's captivo. And I don't, I'm not sure where cautivo comes from, but that's what they call it, el cautivo. It's, uh, the photo is about a dozen young girls and young uh, women in the middle of their performance. And this dance is kind of the highlight of the Santo Tomas feast day, which once again is in the end of November. And the, one of the interesting things about this dance is it's been performed over 150 years in Abiquiu. And unlike a few of the other remaining Hanisaro land grant communities, a lot of them have, uh, a, I wouldn't even say a similar version. They have a dance that's kind of, uh, what they say, that represents their ancestors as slaves as well. And so this dance is, it's a reenactment of um, their ancestors on the main plaza there in Abiquiu, right in front of the church. And uh, when you start looking at it, once again, you start seeing all the intertribal influences, the different pieces of their ceremonial dress and where what, what influenced that. But you also see in this photo very clearly um, dollar bills, in this case, $2 bills pinned to their, to their dress. And really that just represents them being ransomed off into um, off most likely Spanish settlements. At the very end of your essay is a beautiful photo, again, of Rafaelita, and it's captioned, Rafaelita Martinez and daughter Elizadia departing the Santo Tomas Parish. And you say, the Hanizero people of Abiquiu are surrounded by their history. It is not only embedded in their land, but in the ancient pottery sherds they find in their fields, as well as their ranching and farm work, acequias, orchards, faith traditions, and colonial churches. Their sense of place and sense of history are indivisible, as is their indigenous and Hispanic heritage. So I wonder, your ancestry comes from many different landscapes and a variety of different cultures, So considering this, I'm curious what your relationship is to sense of place or what the phrase sense of place means to you. To me, uh, sense of place is, you know, the obvious answer, I think, for a lot of people is just like where where you were born. Hopefully, you know, you had the opportunity to spend time and and like maybe your childhood in in one place not everyone has the opportunity so you really um a sense of place the place um is part of your identity and you know i always feel sorry for people that do move around a lot um 
and I feel sorry for people that discredit where they're from because I grew up, you know, I grew up here in Utah in Salt Lake City and so many of my friends were disenchanted by their their childhood here and they always kind of and this is this is this is some of my friends when they were a little bit younger maybe in their 20s they always they often uh discredited utah said it was this said it was that and i was always defending it i'm always i've always been uh i'm very much a utah i'm very much a salt laker like my you know i dream about the wasatch front the wasatch mountains a dream about um, the southern Utah deserts, these things are, are deeply embedded in my consciousness and what I think about on a daily basis. And so to me, a sense of place is like where you connect, you know, hopefully that is with family. And um, but it's also how you connect to the landscape. And I think when you when you when you look at New Mexico and you look at the Hanizero experience there in New Mexico, it's it's written in the land one of the things that's kind of centered in in a lot of my photography is is geography and landscape and how especially here in the southwest and in the intermountain west the geography and the nature uh determine has really determined how history has played out because of these uh, monolithic mountains and sandstone cliffs it's Mm -hmm. really depicts the way you travel down a mountain corridor and the bends that you take to get to the, the town. And so, so mm-hmm. I really think that part of sense of place is seeing that in, in, in nature. Yeah, that's great. So I was going to ask if you find belonging in Utah and in Salt Lake city, or if you found yourself pining for some other belonging rooted more firmly to the land, but it sounds to me like you just answered that, that you do, find belonging in utah oh yeah i i love utah i love i mean i think it's one of as far as the physical beauty of of this country goes like you have some of the most incredible landscape you have you know where where this project takes place you have the colorado plateau which is just this incredible kind of surreal uh feature that's gigantic and covers a big part of Utah and New Mexico and the Four Corners area, but you also have the Rocky Mountains and also butted up against the Colorado Plateau. You have the basin and range and these, these landscapes, you know, are, are kind of what make the West the West. And, uh, and I think that's how, you know, you can identify, you identify how you fit into that landscape. And hopefully you have the opportunity to uh, spend time and, you know, a lifetime here and, and, and can and can say that about your own life. It sounds like you have a great affection for these landscapes, the Great Basin, the Colorado Plateau and the Rocky Mountains and the interfaces between them. And I'm curious how you use your creativity. Like, do you use your creativity as a means of envisioning the future you want to see in these places you have affection for. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I definitely use my photography and my talents to help promote or educate people about these amazing places and more particularly about these disenfranchised communities. Um, 
I think with photography as a storytelling device and it allowing these communities or people from these communities to express themselves, you know, it brings visibility to what's been edited out of our common narrative. And so I think through photography, I'm able or we're able to bring this to the forefront and we can talk about it. And I think really for the health of our communities and our country, we need to recognize the trauma left behind from this disenfranchisement from colonialization, the stuff that's been edited out and ignored. And it's when you pay attention and you honor that trauma in the sense of paying attention to it and the, and what it's done to these people, you start a healing process that can happen. And I, and I think that's what a big part of our country needs is this healing process is because when you do, when you do spend time and research and learn about these cultures, which are often your neighboring communities, you, when you learn about them with an open heart, you begin to develop empathy. And what, what is, what does that do? It starts creating connections among people that aren't connected and, this education and this empathy, you know, I hope we can bring more and more of it into our country because we're so divided and our colonial narrative, our popular historical colonial narrative has just left out so many people and, and that just causes so much pain and suffering, which is all unnecessary. So I do think Photography for me and for many of my uh, colleagues is is a tool being used to um, bring this healing, and that's why I think it is medicine. I was going to ask what you hope to accomplish by this project, and that answered that question. <laughs> so this photo essay is only the first chapter in an ongoing project, isn't that right? Yeah, so the Hanizaro Pueblo of Abiquiu is the first chapter in my long-term four-part photo essay that I'm currently working on. And I was so um, honored and stoked to work with the Smithsonian on the first chapter. And now I've been researching and preparing to move on to uh, chapter two. And that will be kind of a broader survey of the different Hanizuro communities in, uh, in and around New Mexico. Uh, many of, of, I met a bunch of handfuls of people from those communities already. And so, um, I've been working on this proposal for grant funding and fellowships um, to uh, send me back down next year for uh, another three months. Um, and that's just for chapter two. Eventually, after chapter two, the project will start coming north. Um, there are some interesting elements of Hanisaro history in Colorado. Not a ton, but a little bit. And, you know, it's all just Four Corners area, really. Mm -hmm. Um and it will eventually kind of end up talking that my, my bigger project will end up talking about uh, my own family and uh, my great grandmother, great, great grandmother Rose. 
Great. Uh, Russell, thanks for joining us today. This was great. Thanks, Ben. I've had a lot of fun. Um, good luck with uh, this awesome podcast. Thank you very much for having me. That was documentary photographer Russell Albert Daniels about his project, The Henisro Pueblo of Abiquiu. Thank you so much, Russell. He was interviewed by Ben Kilborn, who also did the sound and wrote and performed our transition music. Thank you so much, Ben. Our theme music is by The Observatory, and we'd like to thank the O.C. Tanner and Eccles Foundations, the Utah Division of Arts and Museums, and the Town of Springdale for their support and funding. Thank you so much. This is Logan Hebner, your host. Thanks for your time, and please be safe. Thank you.